Welcome to the Rosicrucian Podcast. This month, in part one of a two-part podcast, Soror Debbie Barrett explains an important Egyptian concept in the next world, the Amduat. In part two, she leads participants in a guided meditation about this mystical realm. In the time of the pharaohs, in the United Kingdom known as Egypt, there came a text of great mystery and power. Its origin is unknown. Its author is unknown. The date on which it was penned is equally unknown. It is known, however, that the text was studied in the ancient mystery schools, as masters and students alike delved into its great wisdom to unlock the truth held within. A truth, when faced and embraced, has the power to transform life and even death. Or so it is believed. Welcome to this two-part series on the subject of ancient Egyptian beliefs about transformation, transition, and evolution, as presented in the text called The Treatise on What is in the Hidden Chamber, or The Amdwat. The first podcast will mainly focus on helping the 21st century mind to step into the often strange and amazing world of the ancient Egyptians. We will take a journey back to the time of the pharaohs in order to learn how they viewed the natural and spiritual worlds, how they understood the soul and justice, and what was necessary for the evolution of the soul. The second podcast will actually take you on the journey through the Dwat, as presented in the text of the Am Dwat, a journey that is not just for the dead, but it is every bit as beneficial for the living as a means of transformation. Well, right about now, you might be asking yourself, what exactly is the Am Dwat, and why should I spend time in my busy life learning about some ancient text? Indeed, this is an excellent question. The Amdwat is a mystical text that tells the story of the soul's journey through the invisible world. We are all familiar with the soul's journey in the visible world. We call it life, and we are all actively engaged in it right now. The greatest mystery pondered by even the earliest humans was what happens during sleep and after death. Because sleep was perceived as a temporary form of death, the two were frequently linked in their explanation. For the ancient Egyptians, life, sleep, and death were viewed as steps in the cyclical journey to enlightenment and reintegration with the divine in the Duat. This ancient wisdom is presented in order to expand upon your interest in your own soul's journey. The Dwat is simply the realm where the Egyptians practiced consciously engaging the cycles of sleep and transition. The Amdwat is the map on the journey of the soul to consciousness. It is important here to note that although this podcast has been prepared based on the research of some of the most prominent Egyptologists of our day, including Eric Hornung, Betsy Bryan, Jan Asmun, and Zahi Hawass, and some of the most progressive thinkers in the fields of ancient Egyptian psychology, spirituality, and mysticism, 
like Theodore Apt, Jeremy Nadler, Alison Roberts, and Anna Mancini. No one person can actually claim to know what an ancient people thought or believed. Even our understanding of their language should be considered educated guesswork at best. It was a lost language, culture, and most of the religion for almost 2,000 years. Our reconstruction attempt is perhaps at best viewed as a series of jigsaw puzzles spanning three and a half millennia, which requires the assembler to find the piece, decide which puzzle it belongs to, and then determine its placement without the aid of a picture on the box. So, with that rather large disclaimer, let us proceed with our current educated guess of what it was really like to be an Egyptian about 3,500 years ago and attempt to engage the Amdwat on its own terms. Originally, the awesome power of this text was strictly reserved for the use of the king. Even the priests and mystics who spent their lives navigating and teaching the text were not allowed to fully realize its benefits. At least this is how it was until a great king arose from the south, who knew well the mysteries of the text, and determined to make the keys known to all who had eyes to see and ears to hear its deep wisdom. In fact, he sought to restore and strengthen his once conquered and divided country, guided by this text of initiation and transformation. The great king was Tutmos III, the fifth ruler of the 18th dynasty. It had only been about three generations since the Hyksos had taken over the country and ruled from the north. The south, which had been mostly left unmolested, was complacent, preferring security to brazen acts of war. Until three great leaders arose in one family, a father and two sons, who rallied the South to reclaim their national dignity. Twice they failed, with the father and eldest son losing their lives in the battles. It then fell to the indomitable widow, Ahotep, her name meaning Peace of the Moon, who spent the next ten years raising her last and youngest son to finish what the others could not, a destiny which he proudly fulfilled. It was Amos who drove out the Hyksos and reunited the two lands. He was the first king of the 18th dynasty and began what is known as the New Kingdom and the Golden Age of Ancient Egypt. By the time that Tuthmos III came to the throne, the country was stabilized and gaining respect on the international scene, but the religious climate was still unsettled. The Hyksos had not been concerned with the maintenance of the temples or with the supreme religious role that the king was ordained to fulfill. For approximately 150 years, the gods and goddesses of Egypt had been ignored. Under the united reign of Hatshepsut and Tuthmos III, 
they set about to restore not only the military, trade, and diplomatic relations, but to launch a new era of art, architecture, and to restore the very soul of the nation. The keys of this text were known and used in this distant time, and in a culture so unlike our own, but over time they were lost. Or perhaps they were merely hidden from view until the wisdom was once again needed by humanity. But this time it is not just for the king. Rather, as the text states in over fourteen separate places, knowledge of this text is beneficial to all. It has been proven useful millions of times over to those above the earth, on the earth, and in the earth. This is indeed an ostentatious claim, and one might just as easily dismiss it as an exaggeration from a time and a place that routinely created on a grandiose scale. If, however, we from the 21st century culture of advertising and the microchip can step into the time, culture, and cosmology of ancient Egypt, we might once again find a key to personal transformation. This is your invitation to experience the text and time of the Amdwat, to take the journey through the hours of the night as the sun does at the ending of each day, and then to emerge at dawn renewed, revitalized, and fully alive. Please join us on this exciting two-part journey. The first step of our journey must begin with consciously removing ourselves from our present cares and concerns, as well as consciously taking a few steps out of our modern thought patterns, presumptions, and prejudices, in order to step into the time and mind of the ancient Egyptians. Primarily, this requires an open mind and a willingness to suspend judgment, just as one does when visiting another country, culture, or even a friend's house. Ancient Egypt was a time and place existing in duality, not the black and white absolutes that are so familiar to us in the modern era, rather an understanding that for everything there are two opposite presentations of the same thing. For example, day and night, life and death, good and evil. They are but extremes of the same principle. As such, the flip side of the coin was never sought to be destroyed. Rather, it was understood that even evil can be transformed to serve the purposes of good. The prime example of this philosophy can be found in the story of the battles of Horus and Set. Horus was the son of Osiris, who fought Set to avenge the murder of his father and take his rightful place as king. But Set was also Horus's uncle. They fought for a very long time, and in the end, when Horus could have killed his lifelong adversary, he chose instead to harness Set's power and to turn it to serve the good of all instead of his selfish desires. Set was given the kingdom of the Red Land, the desert terrain. 
Set became the primary god for the military, and was even established as a state god when the king named Seti I took the throne. This concept of harnessing and consciously directing all energy was foundational to the Egyptians, as it was the understanding of the cosmic concept of Maat, which held all these opposites in harmony. Maat has often been oversimplified and translated as balance or justice. These are attributes of Maat. But the Egyptian understanding had more to do with the harmonization of diversity. Consider for a moment the extremes presented in the geography of Egypt. Only ten percent of the land will support human life, while the remaining ninety percent is some of the most inhospitable desert on the planet. Balance is not possible with these kind of statistics, but harmony is. And every year, with the flooding of the Nile, the water was coaxed inland in order to grow crops in what used to be the desert. In fact, Egypt often had such an abundance of food that even during famines in other regions, people would come to Egypt for food. The maintenance of Maat was the responsibility of every person, whether in business dealings or personal affairs. It was the king who was ultimately responsible for the preservation of harmony. In fact, the king had to maintain Maat on every level, including assuring that the sun would rise and the Nile would flood. That's just ridiculous, the modern mind might say. Those are cyclical events caused by nature. No one man is responsible for those. And the ancient Egyptian would be completely confused by such a statement. Of course, these are natural cycles, and the Egyptians were charting those cycles long before many civilizations even had written language. But these cycles are not absolute. There were years when the Nile did not rise. Scientifically, one could explain to our ancient friend. That the Nile flood is actually caused by the monsoon rains in Central Africa, and that the waters then traveled thousands of miles before they even get to Egypt. If there was insufficient rain in Africa, the Nile would not flood. Ah, but why did the rains not fall in Africa? Would be the logical question. And the ancient Egyptian answer is: the rains did not fall. Because Maat was not preserved, everything in Egyptian life was also understood symbolically. Just like the failure of the Nile to flood was attributed symbolically to a cosmic imbalance, so too was every aspect of nature and life. Now, going a step deeper into the meaning of Maat, we turn towards the east. And honor the life-giving cyclical event from their perspective, the diurnal journey of the sun. Maat not only provided for harmony in chaos, but it was in fact the energy cycle by which life was given and sustained, like an inhalation and exhalation. Ra, the sun god. 
provides the abundant energy needed to sustain life for everything and everybody. How then was Ra sustained? To the ancient Egyptians, Ra was not a nuclear furnace whose chain reaction hydrogen explosions daily brightened their sky. No, Ra was a god, and like every god, he needed nourishment and breath to live. Only one thing could sustain the gods, and that was Ma'at, offered from the heart of a harmonious person, a person who lived in tune with their heart. Ma'at was a cycle of life-giving energy given from the benevolent sun, gratefully received and shared harmoniously with all other beings, then returned as an offering back to Ra, so that the cycle could continue. It was indeed a most beautiful and noble progression that was designed to inspire a civilization to think, speak, and act from the energy of oneness and love. The rising of the sun for the ancient Egyptians was not only the herald of a new day, it also reminded them of the first day of creation, when the sun rose out of a mound in the midst of the waters of Nun, initiating the first cycle. And in the Egyptian mind, there was no incongruity in seeing this great cosmological event symbolically reenacted by the humblest of creatures, like the dung beetle, as it rolls its eggs in a ball of animal excrement. Likewise, they saw the sunrise metaphorically in the grandest and most powerful. The king was the son of the sun god on earth, and daily he performed a morning ritual that offered Ma'at from his harmonious heart back to Ra on behalf of his people, thus ensuring that Ma'at continued to circulate freely and abundantly. Another point of consideration as we adjust to the Egyptian way of thinking and being is the concept of the soul. First we need to add three new words to our vocabulary, but don't worry, they're very short words and they're very easy to remember, yet they represent a very sophisticated spiritual paradigm, one that might even be compared to psychological and metaphysical thought of the modern era. In order of position on the evolutionary ladder, first there is the Ka. The Ka is most directly tied to the physical life. It is the Ka that necessitated the mummy in order to have a material home and gave rise to the carving of Ka statues just in case something happened to the mummy. The Ka could be equated with the individual spirit of a person the personality and experiences of a single life. The Ka, however, was intimately connected with the other Ka spirits of one's direct ancestors, and even to that of all humanity. This latter concept was later expanded upon by the 20th century psychiatrist and mystic Carl Jung in his theory of the collective unconscious. It was the goal of the evolving Egyptian to differentiate oneself from this collective Ka group in order to progress as an individual soul, 
as a Ba. A very brief detour into ancient Egyptian psychology is necessary at this point. Quite contrary to the beliefs of the ancient Greeks, the Egyptians did not have a concept of the individual. Self-determination, individuality, and free will were only understood by the educated and the spiritual elite after they had gone through training and initiations for this very purpose. For the average Egyptian, their life was determined by their ancestors and family, their station in life, and the gods. Even their bodies were not truly their own. Limbs and organs were manifestations of different gods, and as such, subject to divine protection and direction. The separation of one's ka from the soul group and redefinition of one's self as an individual was in fact the mystery behind the myth of Osiris, his death, dismemberment, and remembering of the self in the form of the mummy was the symbol of one's personal step to evolution. The Ba, on the other hand, was only loosely connected to the physical body, and was usually represented by a bird with a human head in the likeness of the person to which it belonged. As a bird, the Ba could come and go as it pleased, and even fly to different realms, like the Duat. Conscious connection and direction of one's ba is yet another rung upon the evolutionary ladder. In today's terminology, this could be equated with a person developing their soul consciousness, connecting to their higher self, or even being able to travel shamanically on the higher planes. In the Amdwat, a ka that has not yet individuated is not punished or condemned they are simply returned to try again. It is at the level of the Ba that the text becomes truly beneficial. As a Ba, one will either need to face some areas of growth before returning, or they will be able to face their final blockage of Ma'at and evolve into an Ak spirit. The Ak spirit is one who is illuminated and now shines like the sun god himself. The Duat is filled with Ak spirits, who aid both the nighttime and transition time travelers. It is the goal of every Egyptian to become an Ak spirit. Even the past kings of Egypt are accounted for as Ak spirits in the Amduat. It is the knowledge of this divinely ordained cosmological cycle and numerous allies available that is the purpose of this text. In knowledge there is power, and in this knowledge there is the power of transformation. Taking another step into the time and mind of the ancient Egyptians, we need to spend a few minutes understanding their cosmology. The ancient Egyptian world view, as with most pre-scientific cultures, expressed the relationship between nature the stellar bodies, and earth in terms of gods and goddesses. The attributes of each deity reflected the cultural understanding of the energy or effect that a particular star, planet, or natural phenomenon had on earth or humanity. It should also be noted 
that we will be focusing on only one of several cosmologies from ancient Egypt, the one that is most directly linked to the text of the Amduat. This may seem like a strange statement to the modern ear, but the Egyptian mind was extremely flexible in matters of religion and spirituality. In fact, they had no problem at all with having four or five creation myths, with a different god credited with each creation. It's not that every Egyptian would have known and participated in all the religious practices associated with all the different creation myths, because they were regionally located. But there is evidence of pilgrimages from great distances in order to participate in significant annual rites. The king or his appointee was always the chief ritualist, or grand master, if you will, for every temple and every religious observance. Every god, goddess, and temple was sanctioned and supported by the state in the service of Maat. The Egyptians were meticulous record keepers, precise in art and architecture, and even rigid in their form of government. But nature and life are fluid, so their relationship to the divine presence expressed in life and nature were equally fluid. All the creation stories and all the deities pointed to the same mystical truth, and that was all that mattered. This is perhaps the reason why they were so flexible in their theology. The dominance of this god or that goddess was almost like the rise and fall in popularity of a sports team or a celebrity. One could always choose to go with the current winning team, the deities favored by the reigning king, but if one's family had always been Osiris followers, then one could always be an Osiris follower, come famine or high Nile flood. In Egypt, the highest honor was bestowed upon a god when the pharaoh incorporated the god's name into his own. For example, when the first king of the 12th dynasty took the name Amenemhat I, he was declaring that he was Amun's right-hand man, his number one, and Amun was now the state god, a position previously held by Ra, the sun god, during the old kingdom and Montu, the god of war, during most of the Middle Kingdom. Amun was a relatively unknown god in the Pantheon, even though references to him have been found in a pyramid text dating from the 5th dynasty. Actually, Amun's relative obscurity goes right along with his general nature, since his name literally means the Hidden One. You may have even noticed a similarity in the god's name to the name of the text that we will be examining. And you are absolutely correct. The two are connected. In fact, as we will soon see, the Amdwat, or secret chamber, is the realm of Amun, which is the opposite expression of Ra, the visible and invisible expressions of the sun. This duality was even confirmed in the 12th dynasty when the gods were united and referred to as Amun-Ra, the king of the gods. After the 12th dynasty, however, the Egyptians were conquered by the Hyksos, and it was not until the 18th dynasty that the god was elevated to absolute prominence through the devotion of such great kings as Tuthmos I, Hatshepsut, 
Tuthmos III, and Amenhotep III. Now, if you'd like to visualize the following image, we can look at the ancient cosmos in order to understand the context of the Amduat. We will begin by mentally drawing the universe with a circle, and the outer rim is represented by a ribbon of water flowing around the circumference of the circle. The water is called Nun. Nun is the divine expression of infinite unmanifested potential, out of which life first manifested and emerged. The Big Bang, before the Bang. You might even find a commonality with the ancient Judeo-Christian worldview, which also records water as the primordial element of creation, over which the Spirit of God moved. The reason that Nun is only allowed to flow in the circumference of creation is because the great god Atum caused himself to emerge from the waters and push them back in order that there could be room for creation. The first offspring of Atum were Geb, the earth, and Nut, the sky. Please note that Geb is not the earth god. Rather, he is earth, and likewise for Nut being the sky. The Egyptians understood that earth and sky were alive and divine. In fact, earth and sky were so close to the divinity that they were created first, and humans had the privilege to live on and within these two gods. I'll explain the within part in just a moment. Geb and Nut were expressions of Atum's great love, and they expressed that love with each other. Atum was pleased, for a time, but eventually he wanted his creation to continue, to grow and expand. It became necessary that Geb and Nut had to cease their perpetual embrace so that space could exist for more creatures. Next, Atum created Shu, breath or spirit. Shu was placed standing on Geb and raising the arched human body of Nut over his head, thus separating the lovers and allowing space for creation to continue. Nut is the sky in the broadest possible sense. Her star-speckled body is the plane on which all the stellar orbs move in their cycles, and it was through her body that the soul traveled each night hidden from view, only to be birthed again at, with the following dawn. She is positioned so that only the tips of her fingers and toes touch the earth in the east and the west. Her head is always placed in the west so that she can swallow the dying sun and give it birth again in the east. The realm of the Dwat was the passage through her body, and that realm was ruled by Osiris as the first god to die and thus to be resurrected. As the above that provides the reflection for that which is below, the Dwat was hidden within the body of the goddess, and it was Amun, the hidden one, who was understood to reign both above and below from this place of secret transformation. As promised a few moments ago, I will now explain the statement that humans lived on 
and within divinity, as expressed in the earth and sky. Just as Nut takes the dying sun, represented by the god Atum, the creator, into herself in order to rejuvenate and transform him into the reborn sun, which is expressed by the god Kepfer, the scarab beetle, so too does the great goddess take the person at transition or death into herself to take the journey of transformation and rebirth. But the mystery and power of this text is that it is not just a journey for those who have transitioned. It is beneficial for those in earth, on earth, and under the earth. This quote from the twelfth hour of the text boldly states that transformation and rebirth are available to all. All those who are dwelling in Nut, on Geb, and in Nun. You have just taken several steps into the time and mind of ancient Egypt, and I hope that you are intrigued to make use of this new knowledge on a journey through the Amduat in our next podcast. Until then, perhaps this ancient understanding of life can provide a new way to see that which is around you and within you.